0: Let's turn in our Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4 this evening. Last words. You know, last words are impactful and important. It seems like over the years I've had the privilege to visit with several from our church that have cancer, and sometimes it's terminal. And there's one particular man from our fellowship by the name of Clancy that I got to, to walk with through his battle uh, through cancer several uh, years ago. I didn't know him real well prior to his uh, battle from cancer, but through that process got to know him really well. I would sit with him uh, as he was waiting for some of his cancer treatments at the Rocky Mountain uh, Cancer Treatment right down the street here on, on Union, and he would open up and he would just share, so much wisdom with me. It's amazing the things that God shows uh, to a person as they're approaching the end of their life. And he knew that the treatment uh, was not going to be curative for him, that it was was going to just extend his life for about a year's uh, period of time. And he would always tell me, he's like, Eric, in the process of having cancer, I came to realize the Holy Spirit knows me better than anyone else. So I've been crying out to the Holy Spirit to show me what I need to know today and to lead me and guide me. He really encouraged me to pray that way in my life. And I remember the last time that I saw him, I knew in my heart that that would be the last time. I could tell that he was telling me goodbye, and I was telling him uh, goodbye, and he imparted and some shared some things with me. And you, you can probably think of a close friend or a family member that you knew it was that last conversation. You knew it was the last words. And what we have from Paul, to Timothy, is his last words. We know that this is Paul's last epistle. He's waiting his execution as a prisoner in a Roman dungeon. These are the last words that is penned, the last things that we have recorded, and it has great impact uh, for us. We think of the words of Jesus. What are the last words of Christ? The seven words upon the cross, the seven sayings of Christ. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Behold your mother as he bonded John the disciple and Mary, his mother. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment where Christ was being punished for our sins. Cries out, I thirst. The spiritual thirst and physical thirst that he was going through. The cry of victory, it is finished. The price has been paid in full. And then into your hands I commit my spirit. What impactful sayings that we have from Christ. Some of you may be familiar with Bonhoeffer's life. He was a pastor in Germany. Had actually come over to the United States. Took the last ship to Europe from from the United States to go back to Germany. Headed into uh, the turmoil. Really made a stand for Christ. And ultimately he was hung just two weeks before the Allied forces went and defeated Germany. And his last words, the last thing we have from Bonhoeffer before he was executed, he says, this is the end for me, the beginning of life. He says, this is the end, but for me, the beginning of life. He knew that he was departing to be with the Lord, just like the Apostle Paul. So let's pause and let's pray and ask that God would make our hearts open to these last words of Paul. Father, we thank you for these final words from the Apostle Paul. What an incredible life that he lived for you. Really finished well, lived well. And as he exhorts Timothy, we know that you're using these words to exhort and challenge us as well tonight. So please give us ears to hear and hearts to understand. Set me aside and give me grace and strength in communicating your word. Jesus, we pray that, Through our time together, by your grace, we'd be more aware of your presence with us, that you stand with us and that you strengthen us. So, would you bless this time in Jesus' name? Amen. Verse 1 I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. If you're taking notes, the first division tonight is final exhortations. These are the final exhortations given to Timothy. I've really enjoyed studying 1 and 2 Timothy. I hope you have as well. This young pastor who's struggling with fear, not engaged in his calling fully, timid, inexperienced, Paul writing and challenging him, giving him instruction. So much for pastors, so much for Christian living. And here he says, I charge you or I challenge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is a strong challenge. This is a strong charge. It's before the very presence of Jesus, before the very presence of God, who's going to judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. He's saying, Timothy, I'm challenging you with these things because your life is going to be accountable to Jesus Christ. When he comes, he's going to, to hold you accountable. There's two types of judgment for people because there's two categories according to God. One is the unbeliever, the person that doesn't know Christ as their savior, ultimately is going to stand before God for their salvation at the great white throne judgment. And this is recorded for us in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, where the dead rise and stand before the Lord and are judged by their works names not written in the lamb's book of life did not trust Christ for salvation and given over to eternal damnation but there's also a judgment for us as believers it's not a judgment for salvation it's not whether or not you're going to heaven but it's a judgment for reward the bible calls it the bema seat judgment and the bema seat judgment was a reward seat uh, where you would come and determine what kind of reward that you would receive. Now listen to these words from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 12. It says, Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work, which he has built on it, endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. are going to be saved. The question is, do you have reward or not? Our life's work is going to go through this fire, this refiner's fire. And what was of the Lord is going to last into these precious stones. But things that were for ourselves and of this world, are going to perish, wood, hay, and stubble. This doesn't mean that there is a secular and unsecular place of our life, a a secular and a sacred. What I mean is it's not that someone who builds houses for a living, that that can't be done for Christ, or or someone's a school teacher, that that can't be done for Christ. You don't have to be a missionary or a pastor or work full-time at a nonprofit to have your life be sold out for Jesus Christ. Amen? I hope you know that and I hope you believe that. It speaks of the motivation of the heart. What motivates me? Am I doing my life and living my days unto the Lord? And this is what Paul is challenging here. And he's saying, Timothy, you're going to have to give an account to the Lord. Your life is going to pass through this fire. So what we do with our lives affects the reward that we're going to receive. How come that's going to matter? Why are we going to care about it? In 1 Corinthians 3, it tells us what's burned up, we're going to suffer loss. If there was a season of our lives that was consumed as a believer with selfishness and it's burned up, we're going to grieve over that. We're going to, oh man, I regret that, that season of my life. We find that, Crowns are presented at the feet of Jesus. So I think part of the reason we're going to care about this reward is we're able to present it at the feet of Jesus. We're going to offer it to the Lord in worship. I don't fully understand God's economy, but I take God's word for it that we're going to care about it in eternity. Jesus encouraged us to lay up treasures in heaven. So it's with this in mind, this accountability to the Lord, at his second coming, that he's going to judge the believer and the unbeliever. Here's the commission that's given to Timothy, to every pastor. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. Preach the word. True for pastors, but true for every believer. Preach the word. First, let's consider this command to pastors. Timothy is is a pastor. How many pastors, how many churches, church leaderships get off track because the church changes its direction when it comes to teaching maybe the teaching had a tr- church had a tremendous heritage of teaching believing the bible teaching the bible preaching the word of god but yet for some reason maybe it wasn't getting the results that it once did, or there was pressure to fit into the trends of culture. Maybe the church got tired of swimming upstream, but for some reason you would go to that church and you would no longer hear the Word of God be taught. This is the number one job and responsibility of a pastor is to preach the Word, to teach the Word of God. Timothy has been encouraged to study the Word, to rightly divide the Word of God, Paul said that the word of God is not chained. So preach it, share it, declare it. So if God has stirred you in the area of pastoral ministry, know your calling and know that you are to share and to preach God's word. Pray for pastors here at RMC throughout our city and country in the world that we would be faithful to follow God's word to preach the word of God. This isn't an issue of personality or giftedness or or how charismatic you are. This is an issue of obedience. If God has called you to pastor, then he's called you to teach the word of God. But also your life personally. Every believer, we have the opportunity to open our mouths and to share the word of God. All the bad news that we see in the world today, all of the inaccurate news that we see taking place today, the discouragement, How many sources are we going to be able to get the the Word of God? And there's places in our community, in our neighborhoods, throughout our city, locations in this world where people will not come into our sanctuary to hear the Word of God. So guess what? We've got to go to them and preach the Word of God. Not everybody's going to turn on Grace FM or listen to teaching on 100.7, Not everybody's interested in a podcast from Focus on the Family or Greg Laurie. So guess what? All of us have been given this command to go and preach the word. Go and share the word. Be that herald that declares the word of God. I guarantee you, Bible study, Bible reading will become much more exciting and contagious if you approach it with the attitude of, I want to preach it. I want to share it. Yes, this is meant for my relationship with the Lord and my own edification, but God is giving me the opportunity to preach it. You got your mic. It's called your life. Your life is your mic. So use it to declare the word of God because with our life, we're going to have to give an account. We're going to have to give an account before the Lord of how we lived our life. The word of God's Powerful. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It's effective. It's God's word. As Sean was sharing with us at the end of chapter three, it's inspired. It's breathed by God. And since it's breathed by God, we shouldn't be ashamed of it. We should preach it. We should declare it. I think that there's a real famine of God's word throughout our culture and throughout our country and in our community. That means not everybody's heard it. So we have the opportunity to share the word of God with them. When you're preaching the word, you don't always have to give the address. You don't have to go Romans 5.8 and bam, slam it down on somebody. You can give them the truth of that word, the truth of the scripture, without them even knowing that you're quoting the Bible to them. You can rap with them. You can have a conversation with them and discuss it with them and say, do you know that Jesus Loves you while you didn't want to have anything to do with him. I know you don't care about the Lord. I know he's the farthest thing from your heart and mind. But God loves you. And he died for you while you're a sinner in the state that you're in. So may God give us those open doors to preach the word. How we're to preach the word is that we need to be ready in season and out of season. Sometimes you know you're going to have an opportunity to share the word. Like a time like this. So be ready. Be prepared. Be studied. Be asking for the filling of the Holy Spirit. Take down notes. Read some commentaries. Most importantly, spend time in the text. Be ready. But then there's those other times where you had no idea that the opportunity was going to come. Right? Somebody asks you a question and says, Could you tell me how to be saved? We want to be ready for that opportunity. In season and out of season. Someone says, Hey, I'm struggling in my marriage. Do you have any ideas? Um, uh, let me get to BibleGateway.com as quick as possible. Search some things for you on marriage. So we want to be ready in season and out of season. An opportunity we've prepared for, an opportunity that we haven't prepared for. We also want to convince. This is the idea of having a goal in mind when you're teaching and you're sharing and you're preaching. Like tonight, we have a theme, Last Words. We're in the final exhortations. That's, that's a theme hopefully we're going to see throughout this teaching. So, so if you're sharing the word with someone, you want to go with this attitude of, through the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm trying to convince them. I'm trying to get them to, to believe the word of God and get them to a place of responding to the word of God. Also, as the word's preached, it rebukes. We're to rebuke with the word of God or bring correction with the word of God. We live in a culture that doesn't understand correction. We don't believe in correction. We don't see correction as an expression of love. But God says he disciplines those he loves. So as we share the word of God, there's going to be a corrective element. Don't be ashamed of it. Correction's good. Rebuke is good. And with rebuke comes exhortation. With the word of God, we preach it in exhortation. This means to challenge somebody to take the next step. This is very practical in sharing the Word of God. You're investing in someone's life. The Word of God shows you, the Holy Spirit shows you, this is the obvious next step that you need to take in your life. So exhort them to take it. Say, all right, it's time. You need to take that next step. The Word of God exhorts us. Also, the attitude of Timothy and our attitude as we share should be with long-suffering or patience. How long does it take for me to understand a truth that God's trying to communicate? Sometimes a very, 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 very long time. God is patient with me. He's patient with you. So we need to remember that in sharing with others. You may be sharing with someone over the course of five years, 10 years, 15 years. You're preaching the word. You're sharing the word. Do it with patience and long-suffering. It's in God's timing that the light bulb goes on. And then also have the heart of a teacher, long-suffering and teaching, coming alongside and instructing. Verse three: For the time will come, will they? When they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they'll heap up for themselves teachers. Newsflash for Timothy: You're not going to be the most popular. You're not going to be the hottest thing in town that everybody's coming to listen because sound doctrine's not always going to be popular. There's going to be people in Ephesus that don't like to listen to sound doctrine. Instead, they simply want to have a teacher that tells them what they want to hear. So they raise up teachers for themselves. Hey, why don't you teach us? And why don't you tell us what we want to hear? We live in this day and age, don't we? I commend you guys tonight. You're here on a Wednesday night in a Through the Bible study where we're going chapter by chapter, verse by verse through the Bible. Next week, Lord willing, we'll start the book of Titus. And it's hard work on your end as well. We're laboring in the Word. We're studying it verse by verse. And that takes discipline on the behalf of the here. But you're here and you're saying, I I could go find teaching that always has the best jokes, the best illustrations, Great stories. And I walk away having laughed the whole time. Feeling great about myself. Never being challenged with my sin. Or challenged to grow in the knowledge of Christ. But instead you're saying, yeah, I want to be in a verse-by-verse study. I'm ready to put in the work of of studying 2 Timothy chapter 4. So that warning goes to Timothy that there will be those false teachers. In verse 5, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and being turned aside to fables. they so saying, I don't want to put in the work of listening to sound doctrine or listening to God's word. I'd much more enjoy a story. But notice the consequence. Their ears are turned away from the truth. Satan's the fathers of lives, and he's having a field day in our lives by declaring his lies to us. So what a tragic loss that they would lose the truth of God's word for stories. Now here's the final exhortation to Timothy. Preach the word, but here's the kind of life you need to be living. But you be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of evangelists. Fulfill your ministry. Be watchful in all things. Believer, Christian, brother, sister in Christ, we need to be watchful. We need to be awake and alive spiritually. Why? Because... Sin is very deceptive, does a good job of deceiving us. How many times in our lives has something been clearly sinful, clearly wrong, but we've convinced ourselves it's a good idea? So we need to be watchful. We need to be aware and realize that sin wants to sneak in the back door of our lives. Satan is very real, and he's attacking. We need to be alert and not be ignorant of of his schemes. Also, this world system, the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and, and the pride of life. For Timothy, as a pastor, he really doesn't, can, he can't afford the opportunity to fall asleep spiritually on the job. He needs to be watchful. He needs to be engaged with the Lord, engaged in the battle that he's fighting. He says, be watchful in all things, but then endure afflictions as we say, God, I I want you to use my life, that means there's going to be difficulty and there's going to be suffering, but endure. It's only for a moment. We're going to be with the Lord. And oftentimes in this life, there is a joy and a victory that comes on the other side of affliction. You maybe have been enduring for a very long season. Keep enduring. You don't know when the breakthrough is going to come. You don't know what that breakthrough is going to look like. But the only way to find out is to keep going. Sometimes the servant of the Lord simply has to put their head down and keep going for the joy that's set before them. Don't opt out. Don't give up. Endure affliction. And then do the work of an evangelist. Oh man, this verse just busts my worldview. You know what my worldview is? I'll let the evangelists do evangelism. And some people really do have the gift of evangelism. They sneeze and five people come to the Lord. Wow, this is incredible. I remember years ago doing youth ministry, senior high youth ministry, and I took a Wednesday off and was on vacation. I think Amber and I and Hannah was a baby at the, the time. We went to Florida for a week, and I came back. Kent Nolly spoke. He was one of our leaders, and Everybody's like, it was amazing. Before he even started the Bible study, he just got up before the youth ministry and said, We're going to have a Bible study. And if you don't know Christ as your Savior, it's going to be meaningless. So why don't you get saved before we start? And no joke, half the youth group got saved. (laughs) Kent's an evangelist, right? His heart stirred, and he's like, These kids, they don't even know the Lord, they need to come to know Christ. As their Savior. And some people just have that gift of evangelism. Because God has given that gift to some, the rest of us, we go, well I don't really need to share the gospel with anybody. But is that congruent with the Great Commission? Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey the commands of Christ. How does someone decide to follow Jesus Christ by receiving the gospel? So all of us are called to make disciples. All of us are called to share the gospel. Timothy doesn't seem to fall in the camp of being an evangelist. But as the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, one of the exhortations is do the work of an evangelist. Evangelism is a work. It's a labor of prayer. It's a commitment to share the goodness of Christ And what he's done in our lives. A very practical way of doing this is share your testimony. If you go through the Bible and look how God uses testimony. What is testimony? It's sharing how God saved you. How God brought you to Christ. We think of the Apostle Paul. His testimony is recorded in the book of Acts three times. And fairly quickly he shared what was going on in his life before he received Christ when he received Christ and the new life that God was leading him into. So can you think about what your life was like before you knew the Lord? What are some words that you would use to describe that? What were the events that were taking place that caused you to come to know Christ as your Savior? What feelings were you have in your life? Was there emptiness? Who was the believer that God used to share with you? And then what life then did God call you to to live. It's a worthwhile exercise, if you haven't done this, is to write down your God's story in your life and be prepared to share it. Many people cannot say no to your testimony. If you say, you know, can I share with you what God's done in my life? This is what my life was like before I knew him. This is how he saved me. This is what he's doing in my life currently. I think we would all agree that our country needs the touch of God. How does the touch of God come? It comes through the gospel. What if the gospel was ringing out more clearly than all the bad news, than all the discouragement, than all the hopelessness? Just like our Christian life will be stirred if we read the Bible with an attitude to share it, our daily life is going to be changed if we say, God, I'm committed to sharing the gospel. I'm committed to doing the work of the evangelist. I'm committed to looking and seeing for that person that you're going to bring into my life where I can share the gospel. It's a great challenge for me. I don't share the gospel near as much as I would like. The end of verse five says, fulfill your ministry. What does this mean? It means to do those things that God has called you to do. It's beautiful when you fulfill your ministry when you do those things that God's asked you to do, you will be most fulfilled as you fulfill your ministry. Not that it's going to be easy, but you're going to go, oh, this is worthwhile. This is what God's asked me to do, and I'm finding pleasure in walking in obedience. This is a great verse to memorize. Be watchful in all things, endure affliction, do the work of evangelists, fulfill your ministry. Second division is fulfill final memoirs, excuse me, final memoirs. These Paul's biographical statements of his own heart and life. It says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. A drink offering comes from the Old Testament. Genesis 35, verse 14, we find Jacob offering a, burnt, or a drink offering to the Lord. This is carried into the book of Exodus, and it's included with the burnt offering and the grain offerings. It was God-ordained sacrifices that took place in the morning and the evening in Exodus twenty nine forty. So, so you can picture this drink offering being poured out. And Paul's saying that he's already being poured out as a drink offering. This is how Paul viewed his Christian life. It didn't belong to him, but it was being poured out in worship to the Lord. Just like Mary that we saw In our weekend study in the Gospel of Mark, is she lived her life for the Lord, and he says, "Here's my life; it's being poured out as a drink offering." I suggest to you this evening that you're going to pour out your life for something. Going to pour it out for yourself? Going to pour it out for an idol, or you're going to pour it out for Jesus Christ? And Paul says, "My life's being poured out as a drink offering." Verse seven: I've fought the good fight; I've finished the race. And I have kept the faith. He knows that he's passing away. He knows he's about ready to be executed. And he says, I have fought the good fight. Paul saw his life as a spiritual battle, Ephesians chapter 6. And he says, I was in the fight. And I fought a good fight. I've given it my all. He also saw his life as a race. And he says, I have finished the race. I've completed what God has set out before me. This race that God has given to us is not a sprint, it's a marathon. It's lifelong. And to see it as one where we're pressing into our relationship to the Lord and the mission that He's given to us, and at the end of our life to be able to say, I've finished my race. I've finished what God had in place for me, and I have kept the faith. I've continued to trust the Lord, I've continued to trust in Jesus for salvation and trust him in my daily life and the situations that I'm going through. You know it, I know it. It's very rare to see somebody finish well, even in the scriptures. To the Old Testament, the majority of the kings started well but finished poorly, even sometimes to the point of not being in relationship with God. Solomon, the great king who is so wise, David's son, had multiple wives, hundreds of wives, 700 wives, 300 concubines. The scripture tells us those wives turned his heart away from God. He started to worship idols. And that's the last commentary that we have on his life. We hope Ecclesiastes was his letter of repentance, but we don't know for sure when he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. He was the wisest man on the planet, the scripture tells us. Wrote the book of Proverbs, but yet his heart was turned away from the one true living God. Even Gideon, when you read the, the book of Judges, he doesn't end well. He ends on a, on a negative note. And time and time again, as you're going through the Old Testament, they begin well, but they don't finish well. Begin well, but they don't finish well. And in our lives, we want to finish like the Apostle Paul. It's not about never making a mistake. You're going to fall down in this Christian life. The important thing is to get up and to keep going. If you sin, if you fall short, go through a difficult season, don't stay in that place. Get up and and keep going. To be able to say, I've finished the race. I fought the good fight. I have kept the faith. Now, from those that I've observed that have finished well, to me, there seems like there's some key ingredients. They never lost sight of their personal walk with God. They maintained time alone with God in the word and in prayer. Also, they didn't lose sight of fellowship inside of the body of Christ. 70 years old, 80 years old, 90 years old saying, I'm going to be in the house of God, and I'm in a fellowship with believers. So if we start to look at our daily life, and we go, man, it's been a long time since I've been in the Word. Get back to that. There'll be seasons in the Word where it's really exciting, and other times where it's really dry. Make it part of your life. Make prayer a part of our, our life. The enemy's going to want to isolate you. He's going to want to isolate me to get us away from the body of Christ, you're going to get hurt by other believers and the tendency is to say, I love Jesus, I just don't like church and I don't like other believers so I'm going to do this apart from other believers. That's always to our own detriment. Be willing to forgive. Commit to the body of Christ. Stay in fellowship. It may not always be here but make sure you're plugged in with a group of believers and then hands down, pride always does us in, doesn't it? Start feeling like, oh, I'm doing pretty good spiritually. I see myself finishing strong. Take heed if you think you stand, lest you fall. A lot of these kings that we're referring to in the Old Testament, they fell when things were going really well. They began to take credit for themselves and to drift away from the Lord. So pride will cause us to fall quicker than anything else. Paul finishes well. He's an example of finishing well. In verse 8, Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul knew there was a crown that was waiting for him. Not because of his own righteousness, but because he trusted Christ's righteousness. He knew that by God's grace that he had lived his life well. Not perfectly, But he had been faithful to the things that God had called him to do. So God had stored up for him a crown of reward. There's this promise that's given to us that this crown of righteousness will also be given to everybody that loves Christ appearing. Everyone that's looking forward to Christ setting things right. Aren't you looking forward to Christ setting things right? All of the pain and the turmoil in our own lives... The sorrow and the heartbreak, to all the craziness that we see politically, to all of the uncertainty internationally, it all points to Christ's return and looking and longing for his return. Doesn't it warm your heart when somebody that you love notices that you're gone and looks forward to you coming home? Isn't that why you love the dog? Because the dog loves your appearing? I mean, dogs are great like that, you know? Here we have neglected them all day long. We come home and... <laughs> So excited to see you. Get frustrated with your dog. You know, maybe you've never gotten frustrated with your dog. I've gotten frustrated with my dog. And my dog's still at the end of the day. So happy to see you. Unconditional love. Your family, your spouse oh, I'm glad you're home. I missed you. It's so good to see you. There's nothing like young kids when you walk in from a day of work and they, they run in and dad and they tag, they love your, your appearing. And this blesses the heart of Jesus that we love his appearing. I think Jesus also knows that there's something that happens in our hearts when we're looking to his appearing and we're not looking to this life. Our hope is in him. Our hope is not in In this life. In verse 9, we see the third category from verse 9 to verse 22 is the final greetings. So the final exhortation, the final memoirs, and now the final greetings. If you've studied with us Paul's letters, you know that Paul oftentimes ends his letters with greetings, addressing individuals. Paul did well in his relationship with the Lord, but he was also a master of relationship with people. He invested in people. He loved people. He cared for people. And he says, Be diligent to come to me quickly, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and have it departed from Thessalonica, Cretans from Galatia, Titus from Dalmatia. So he says, I want you to come quickly. He's at a point where he's asking Timothy to come visit him in Rome in this dungeon. One of the reasons he needs Timothy to come so quickly is because Demas has forsaken him. We know of Demas from Philemon, verse twenty-four. It says, "As do Mark, Archicus, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers." So Demas was called a fellow laborer. In Colossians four, verse fourteen, it says, "Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you." So Demas was someone who was faithful in the ministry who served with and around Paul. But at this point, he forsook Paul because he loved this present world. We talked about the pull of the world, the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. Don't under-evaluate its power to be able to pull you in and to diminish your relationship with the Lord and your effectiveness for the kingdom of God because it happened to Demas. In verse 11, only Luke is with me, Luke is the physician that wrote the gospel of Luke and also the book of Acts. And he is with Paul in this moment of suffering. Thank God for the Lukes in your life. Many times there'll be one that stands with you, that's in that dungeon with you, that says, you know what, let me just sit here with you. I know God is with you, but I'm going to be with you as well. And that was Luke. Then get Mark and bring him with you, for he's useful for me in ministry. is useful to me for ministry. I love this story because this is John Mark. You may remember from the book of Acts, he caused a great division between Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas were this great missionary team going around, impacting lives for Christ, starting churches. They take John Mark, who's the nephew of Barnabas. For some reason, unbeknownst to us, John Mark decides he's going to leave this missionary journey. Maybe he didn't like the food. Maybe he got dysentery. I don't know. Maybe he got homesick, missed the ice cream and cappuccinos back at home. So he's like, I'm leaving. But for whatever reason, he decides he's not staying with Paul and Barnabas. The next missionary journey comes. Barnabas is the son of encouragement, and he says, Let's give John Mark a second chance. Paul says, Not on your life. I'm not taking that guy. He left us high and dry, we'll take somebody else. And there was a sharp disagreement between these two mighty men of God to where they part ways and they'd never do ministry together again. Paul takes Silas, Barnabas takes John Mark. Now the question is: who is right? Who is right? Is Paul right or is Barnabas right? I think they're both right. I think that John Mark needed to learn a lesson from the Apostle Paul. That ministry is hard, and you need to take it seriously. And through that tough stance of the Apostle Paul, he learned something. But he also needed a Barnabas in his life who would give him a second chance. He learned something from both men and from both approaches. But now here at the end of Paul's life, who's he asking for? John Mark. John Mark didn't give up. Do you know how tempting it would be to just say, I'm going to never serve the Lord again because the Apostle Paul thinks I'm a loser. He doesn't want me with him. He doesn't think that I'm fit for ministry. I'm already kind of feeling that way. So forget this. I'm done. But to John Mark's credit, he continued to serve the Lord. He continued to serve the Lord. And at the end of Paul's life, he says, John Mark is useful to me. Make sure you bring John Mark. A beautiful reconciliation of John Mark and Paul's relationship if you're in that place where you feel like you failed in serving the Lord, you feel like you're disqualified, it would encourage you in the story of John Mark. Get up, get serving again, be faithful. Maybe your mentor is looking down on you for the time being. You serve unto the Lord and allow God to, to work in your behalf. In verse 12, And Tychicus I've sent to Ephesus. Tychicus is mentioned in Acts, Ephesians, Colossians, And Titus as a beloved brother and a faithful minister. He clearly has Paul's trust as he's being sent to Ephesus. Bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas when you come, and the books, especially the parchments. No way! Paul, here at the end of his life, is saying bring the study materials. Bring the books, bring the parchments, As long as I'm here, I'm going to keep running. I'm going to keep worshiping. I'm going to keep studying. I wonder what the study life of the Apostle Paul was like. What his prayer life was like. He says, I'd like my cloak because it's cold in the dungeon. But I'd also like the books. Send me the books. May we take this as a challenge from the Holy Spirit? What's your life like as a student of God's word? Double it. Double it. Are you planning on reading God's word one time this year? Read it twice. Are you going to read through the New Testament? Read through it twice. Are you reading God's word a half hour a day? Read it an hour a day. Do you read one book a year? Read two. Do you read 10? Do 20. I could spend less time looking for my next dream car on Craigslist and more time spending studying the word of God, right? So many things that that we chase, that get our attention, that don't have any eternal value. And here Paul, at the end of his life, is saying, bring me my books. Bring me the parchments. I want to study more. If I live to be 90 years old, I want to be saying, what books haven't I read about the Lord? How can I study more than the things of God? It's a good challenge to us from the Holy Spirit. Verse 14, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. Woo! Wouldn't want the Apostle Paul praying that on my behalf. right? But there's wisdom in Paul here. He's been personally harmed by Alexander the coppersmith. We don't have the details. Paul doesn't need to give the details. But he hands it over to the Lord. Everyone's going to give account to the Lord. And may the Lord repay him. Have you been personally hurt, personally wronged? Personally taken advantage of, give it over to the Lord and allow God to work his justice. But he also gives a warning. He says, You also beware of him, for he has greatly resisted our words. You must warn others about wolves. There's more than just personal harm here. Alexander was a detriment to the teaching of Christ and the gospel, so he warns Timothy about Alexander verse 16, at my first defense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May it not be charged against them. Paul went through a season as he was arrested where no one stood with him. It appears that many frowned on difficulty in this culture. And if you were arrested, many just forsook Paul and thought the worst of Paul instead of standing by him. Powerful verse here in verse 17 but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me and that all the Gentiles might hear. Also, I was delivered out of the mouth of a lion. You don't know what others will do. Even the most faithful in your life. They're human. They fall short. They may forsake you, they could pass away. But this you do know. The Lord will stand with you. May God right now give us an understanding of His presence. As believers, he stands by our side. He's ever with us to strengthen us. How was Paul able to do all of the things that he did for Christ? It wasn't him. The glory doesn't go to Paul. It's Christ strengthening him. It's Christ standing with him. Sometimes we're not aware of Christ's presence until we've been forsaken by others. We go, yep, all others forsook me, but the Lord, he stood with me, and he, he strengthened me. Corey Tinboom, who was arrested for hiding Jews during World War II, then thrown into a concentration camp, where her father and sister were murdered. She says, you'll never know that God is all that you need until he's all that you have. And you may be in that very place tonight where you've been rejected, where very few are standing with you. You need to know that the Lord stands with you. The Lord is ready to strengthen you. The Lord is present in this dungeon that Paul is living in. In Hebrews 13, verse 6 Is the promise that we're given to by the Lord? It says, For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? God's presence has an impact upon us. He has said, He'll never leave me or forsake me. So I will boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not live in fear. When people had an encounter with God's presence throughout scripture, fear was dispelled in their lives. Because they understood, I don't have any reason to fear because God is with me. He is standing here with me. He is present in my life. He is my helper. I will not fear. Then what can man do to me? I don't have to go through my life in fear any longer. The promise of God that he stands with us. And Paul says, then I was strengthened. I was able to preach to the Gentiles. And then he said, I was delivered out of the mouth of a lion. I would love a little more detail here. Like, what exactly is this? And there's several thoughts about this. Some think that he's speaking of Nero and God delivering him from Nero before he was finally executed. Or that he's speaking of Satan That the lion Satan and God's delivered him out of the the mouth of the lion. Or possibly that he was forced to go before a lion in a setting like the Roman Colosseum. We know throughout the Roman Empire that Christians were put before these, these wild beasts. And they're all possibilities. But what's clear is that God had delivered him. In verse 18, And the Lord will deliver me from every evil work. And preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. There was many times where Paul was physically delivered. But then there were other times where he was beaten. Where he was stoned. And then ultimately thrown into this dungeon. And he was killed. So is verse 18 still true? Yes. Because they killed him in this life only to deliver him into eternal life says, and the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. Has a few more greetings. He says, greet Priscilla and Aquila, a wonderful couple who served with Paul throughout his life. Married couple. Married couples, what an example to serve together with our spouses. And the household of the Nisiphorus, earlier in chapter one of 2 Timothy, Paul said that Nisiphorus often refreshed him. Erastus stayed in Corinth. Erastus is not only a cool name, but it's also mentioned in the book of Acts and Romans. He's an associate of Paul. But Trophimus I've left in Miletus sick. This is a very insightful verse, and this is why. Because some will teach, if you have more faith, you will be healed. So apparently, Trophimus didn't have enough faith, nor did the Apostle Paul. Because the Apostle Paul left him sick. Do you think Paul prayed for his healing? Yes. But God chose not to heal him. Sometimes God says no to healing us physically in this life. Sometimes he says yes. He will heal us all upon going into heaven on eternal life. But it does give us an example that sometimes God allows physical ailments to stay with us. Verse 21, do your uttermost to come before winter. He needs that coat before winter. It's getting cold. Do whatever you can to get here before winter. Ebulius greets you, as well as Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and all the brethren. Four believers are listed here, believers in Rome, that are also sending their greeting to Timothy. Paul's in fellowship, even in this dark hour with these four believers. We don't know a lot about these four believers. They're not mentioned in other places. And 2nd Timothy ends with these words, the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. Do you picture the apostle Paul right before his execution? What are the last words that I want Timothy to hear? The Lord Jesus be with your spirit. Jesus knows what's going on in your inner man. Knows what kind of day you had today. Your thoughts, your discouragements, your joys, your pleasures. And Jesus wants to minister to be with your inner man. And also grace, current, afresh in our lives. As he has grace to give us. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Grace is not just past tense in our lives. It's current and will continue to be in the future. God lavishing his favor afresh in our lives. Paul's life had been impacted by what? Grace. The persecutor of the church. Hated Christians. Killed Christians. God saved him. He experienced grace. He experienced grace in daily living for God to empower him. And he says, Timothy, I want you to know grace. I want you to continue to experience God's grace in your life. So let's stand and let's pray and ask that the Holy Spirit would help us to apply these last words from the Apostle Paul. Father, right now, through the work of your Holy Spirit, would you bring attention what each of us specifically need to know about you and what we need to apply to our lives. We thank you for the promises that are in this section of Scripture the promise of your presence that you will stand with us, even the most darkest of hours, the promise of your grace. We thank you for the challenges that are here for us to preach the word, to endure inflictions, to do the work of evangelists. We don't want to simply be hearers of your word but be doers of your word. As we celebrate communion tonight, would you minister to our hearts? In Jesus' name, amen.